Welcome to Prima's podcast. My name is Shonda Ragland. I manage the education and training programs at the Public Risk Management Association. Today, Dr. Mark Kroll will discuss use of electrical weapons in law enforcement. Dr. Kroll is an adjunct professor of biomedical engineering at the University of Minnesota, as well as California Polytechnic University, San Luis Obispo. Dr. Kroll is a distinguished guest faculty for UCLA Creativity and Innovation Program. Dr. Kroll retired in 2005 as Chief Technology Officer and Senior Vice President of St. Jude's Medical Inc.'s main division to focus on teaching. Dr. Kroll's research specialty is the effects of electricity on the human body. He holds over 360 issued U.S. patents. Dr. Kroll is often referred to as the most prolific inventor of medical devices in the world. Over 1 million human beings have his patents in their bodies. He is the co-editor of four technical books dealing with electrical shocks, including two on electrical weapons. Dr. Kroll has lectured in over 30 countries. He is the sole author, as well as the co-author, of over 90 full-length papers and Medline indexed letters. He is the litigation consultant or expert for Chicago PD, NYPD, LASD, U.S. Department of Justice, and Taser International. Dr. Kroll attained a BS in mathematics and a MS and a PhD in electrical engineering from the University of Minnesota. He also holds an MBA from the University of St. Thomas. We will also be joined by Danica Williams, a member of Prima's education and training team. Danica will moderate the discussion. Enjoy the show. Mark, can you give us a brief overview on electrical weapons and their use in law enforcement? Certainly. Now, most people refer to electrical weapons as tasers because that is the dominant brand, although there are other brands that are sold of electrical weapons. This reminds me a little bit of my youth when the first copy machines came out, and they were made by Xerox. And so people talked about a Xerox machine and making a Xerox copy of something, and that's fairly common for new technology. So you'll forgive me if I use the more formal term of electrical weapons. These weapons deliver a mild shock with pulses finely tuned to control muscles to stop aggression or resistance in a suspect. The design is to remove the stresses and the risks of injury from things like baton strikes and wrestling that police officers had used previously. And are there certain protocols for the use of electrical weapons, like tasers, by law enforcement? Yes, there are numerous and varied protocols, which would be expected due to the rapid adoption of these weapons. At different law enforcement agencies, they are set at different points in the force continuum. Many times they are set right above verbal commands. Sometimes they are set at a higher level than pepper spray sometimes lower than pepper spray, and sometimes very near the top, near lethal force. There is no single standard, and that is probably best because we are still learning about the best uses of these weapons and the legal implications, and so that will all probably shake out in the next five to ten years. What has been the impact of electrical weapons on policing? The suspect injuries have been reduced by about two-thirds compared to alternatives such as baton strikes, pepper spray, 
and wrestling. And this has been demonstrated in some excellent studies sponsored by the United States Department of Justice, such as the McDonald study and the Taylor study. And the studies total have covered 50,000 uses of force, and they consistently show that suspect injuries are reduced by two-thirds. Of course, that does not count the little mosquito bite of the probe as an injury. These studies look at more serious injuries such as bruising or broken bones, etc., which are more common with wrestling and baton strikes. This has led to a reduction in litigation and settlements against law enforcement. For example, in Michigan, the Michigan Risk Management Pool noticed such a dramatic reduction in their lawsuit settlements and lawsuits themselves that for quite some time, they subsidized the purchase of electrical weapons. Fatal officer-involved shootings are also reduced by about two-thirds. Now, I want to stress that there is a big if in that result. This was studied by Burdick, who was an expert in criminology and law enforcement statistics, and he found that in agencies where police officers were allowed to use the weapons at their discretion, there was a reduction of about two-thirds in, in fatal shootings. Unfortunately, there are some agencies that restrict the use of these weapons until there is active resistance or aggression. And at that point, the law enforcement officer has about half a second to decide between grabbing their electrical weapon, typically on the left side of their body, and their firearm on the right side. And in those cases, they cannot statistically demonstrate reduction in shootings. So this is an unfortunate side effect of well-meaning restrictions on the use of the weapons in that police shooting deaths are basically back to normal. Officer injuries are reduced by about 40 to 70% depending on the studies. So this has had a significant impact on workman's compensation claims. The weapons have been widely accepted. They are used about 900 times per day worldwide and have been about 3 million field uses. The most interesting and I think valid comment that I've heard came from a police chief who said, this is the biggest benefit for law enforcement since the police radio. What are the primary risks associated with the use of these weapons? Well, these weapons are weapons after all, and they are used in in violent confrontations. So there are certainly risks. The biggest risk is a fatal fall. The weapon, when properly used, will give a muscle lockup and the person will fall to the ground without the use of their arms. With the inability to use their arms to slow their fall, they can fall and hit their head on a hard surface such as a curb, and this can result in a fatal traumatic brain injury. This most commonly occurs if the suspect is on an elevated surface or is running on pavement. There have been 16 such deaths worldwide. A very rare but real risk is the ignition of fires. 
For example, there was a case in Texas where an individual doused himself in gasoline and announced that he was going to go into the house and light himself on fire because his wife had thrown him out and he wanted to burn down the house. She called the police. The police showed up to control him. They used the electrical weapon, but the spark ignited gasoline fumes and he burnt to death outside of the house. There have been three or four fatal fires worldwide. Again, this is a tragedy, but statistically it's less likely than being hit by lightning as this is three or four cases out of over three million field uses. The most serious non-fatal injury is single eye blindness. The officer discharges the weapon at an individual who then ducks. A probe could go in the eye. There have been about six cases of single eye blindness. The final risk that we all think about would be electrocution because it uses electricity and we know that with sufficient electrical current, people can die and that's what electrocution is. It does not appear that's possible with these weapons as they satisfy the United States and international safety limits for electric fences. And those are designed very conservatively so that a nine-year-old farm child walking barefoot could walk into an electric fence wire chest high barefoot. They would receive a nasty shock, but they would not be electrocuted. So the idea that anyone has been electrocuted by one of these weapons is a very common but very false urban myth. We hope you found the information you've heard so far useful. I would like to take a moment and invite you to Prima's 2016 annual conference, June 5th through 8th in Atlanta, Georgia. Here are some words from Prima member Dorothy Jerdrum regarding why she values Prima's annual conference. I think the most valuable takeaways are the connections that are made. Uh, for me, it's making connections with both longtime friends and colleagues, but also new people, new folks um, in the field of risk management. I like hearing the buzz or what risk managers are talking about, what they're worried about, what their world is like today. That's really, really helpful to me in my industry. And I think the, the Prima Conference does a really good job of offering network opportunities and chances for people to share information. To learn more about the annual conference, visit primacentral.org. Now back to Dr. Kroll and Danica. Now, what are some of the other biggest understandings and myths? Well, this kind of ties into the electrocution concern. Electricity is invisible, and we know it can be dangerous, so it can lead to excessive fear. We know that if we touch a 9-volt battery to our tongue, we will get a stimulation. It might be annoying, but it's not dangerous. We also know that if we touch a power line, we're almost certainly dead within a half a second. We know from personal experience the difference between being hit by a tennis ball and a bowling ball. But the average person has no real benchmark or training to understand the difference between the mild and safe shock of a taser electrical weapon and a lethal shock like that from a power line. Another big myth is 50,000 volts. The weapon can generate an arc of up to 50,000 volts to jump through clothing to contact a suspect 
if they are heavily clothed in a winter environment or a cold winter environment to be specific. But that is never put into the body. If it did, a tremendous current from that would instantly vaporize the tiny connecting wires, which are barely thicker than strands of human hair. The actual pulse voltage is 600 volts. And even that is off over 99% of the time because the weapon just delivers these short pulses at 18 pulses per second to control the muscles. So the average voltage is about 1.1 volts. So it's less than what you'd have from a AA battery on average. And I mentioned the biggest myth about anyone ever having been electrocuted, but that's still very common because people will read a newspaper article about an illustrated death. If someone dies fighting the police, it is in the newspaper the next day. Toxicology is done over the next month, and a month later, the medical examiner issues their report along with the autopsy, and then they explain why the person actually died, but that's generally ignored. What people remember is that first headline, which is, man dies after police use a taser, and so the natural thought that we would all have intuitively is that the electrical weapon must have had something to do with the death. Now, are there legal implications of electrical weapons usage by law enforcement officers? And can you describe some or provide some examples? There's always a concern over misuse, as there is with any police control tool or any police weapon. This is markedly reduced with the electrical weapons because they store every trigger pull inside a computer memory of the device. On the contrary, if a police officer were to use pepper spray on an individual or baton strikes and there were no cameras involved, no one would know if they used that weapon or how many times they used it, unless, for example, the baton strikes left some big marks. As one very rare but instructive example, there was a jail guard that was accused by a prisoner of basically shocking him for amusement. The prisoner finally reported this, and the jail guard denied it. But when the weapon was downloaded onto the sergeant's computer, they noticed that, indeed, the trigger had been pulled every day at the time that this jail guard had been reported to shock this prisoner. And so the jail guard was convicted, I believe, of perjury and abuse of the inmate and ended up on the other side of the bars. That sort of thing is extremely rare because of the accountability features built into the weapon. And finally, what are the biggest issues in implementing an electrical weapon program for the law enforcement agency? The biggest issue is to educate the public. One of the most popular things that was done five to ten years ago was to invite newspaper reporters and TV reporters out for training where they would see that the law enforcement officers would receive a dosage of the shock. In many cases, the reporters would also volunteer to receive the shock. I can tell you from personal experience, having done it three times, it hurts. Electric shocks hurt. But when it's over, it's over. And with that kind of an education, so that reporters 
can understand the powerful impact of this weapon on the body control and how it's temporary and safe, that can reduce a lot of inflammatory headlines and reporting. It would be also helpful for law enforcement agencies to educate the local judiciary and the legal bar and the media about the statistics on these weapons. Thanks to the United States Department of Justice, there are excellent large studies that show what the benefits and actual risks are. And once these are explained to well-meaning media and other influential people in the government, problems seem to go way down. Now, one of the big issues is that some agencies have restricted electrical weapons to situations of active resistance. As I mentioned before, when this happens, it appears that the reduction in fatal shootings is loss. And so here we have the unfortunate side effect of probably well-meaning restrictions leading to a very bad outcome. And when you think about it logically, understanding the science and the statistics behind these weapons, we really shouldn't put onus restrictions on their usage because it is the safest use of force tool. Of course, as citizens, we all expect that police officers will never use excessive force against us. That's part of our constitutional rights in this wonderful country. But there are no accountability features built into, for example, pepper spray and punches and baton strikes, and those are more dangerous than electrical weapons. But because of the fear of electricity in the mass public, electrical weapons have received greater restrictions in some jurisdictions. Finally, in the Fourth Circuit, we have a very difficult and different situation. There was a three-judge panel that ruled in the Armstrong v. Pinehurst County case that basically said that they could not use an electrical weapon until there was active aggression against a police officer. Unfortunately, with that standard, it's too late. At that point, subject is coming at the police officer in contact with them or on top of them. And number one, they do not have the distance to get a good probe spread. It's critical to understand that this tool, like anything electricity, requires two connections. When you plug your radio into the wall, there are two plugs for that outlet. And so two probes have to go into the subject. If the officer is seven feet away, those probes are spread out at eight degrees, and they will be about one foot apart on the body, and they will get good control. Once a subject is in contact with the police officer, it is no longer possible to get that distance or probe spread, as we call it, from the subject and get control. And then this can quickly lead to the use of firearms. This appeals court decision from the Fourth Circuit is not yet completely resolved, and something will have to happen as it puts the Fourth Circuit at an apparent 
position contrary to the United States Supreme Court from their ruling in Graham v. Connor for the use of force. And it sets the Fourth Circuit apart from the rest of the country. It's hard to say how this will be resolved, but it will eventually have to be resolved if we want to see a reduction in fatal police shootings. We have reached the end of our podcast. Thanks so much, Dr. Kroll and Danica. Please visit the Prima website to listen to other Prima podcasts, join upcoming Prima webinars, read Prima blogs, and learn about additional Prima educational resources. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and our very own Prima Talk. Have a wonderful day.